welcome back. This is Exhibit AI, a podcast exploring contemporary legal issues for tomorrow's technology, presented by the Center for Legal and Court Technology at William & Mary Law School. I'm your host, Taylor Lane, a research fellow with CLCT. Before we begin, I want to say two things to our audience. First, I would like to ask our listeners to please excuse any sound quality issues we may have. We're taking the current COVID-19 crisis very seriously, so we're recording this episode via Zoom. Second, I think Alex actually has an update for us uh, based on the material we discussed last time. Alex, would you like to chime in and kind of explain what you found recently? Yeah, thanks, Taylor. So since last week, one of the topics that we talked about has actually had a really important news update. And I thought in terms of full disclosure, we should really address it before going on to a new subject. Last week, when we were discussing the IDD community, one thing we mentioned was the potential problems that would come with a coronavirus tracing app if it was using location data and how easy that would be to take the location data and supposed anonymized data and really use that to individualize the results. You could really easily take that data and someone from the IDD community's very unique health circumstances and find the individual associated with that data. Since then, there's been a recent news article about Google and Apple and their contact tracing app that's in the works. They announced earlier this week that their app is going to ban the use of location tracking, and that's mainly over concerns about personal data. The system will actually use Bluetooth signals now to determine how close you come to diagnosed COVID-19 patients as you are going about your everyday life. Now, one note is that that assumes that people are going to reveal to Apple and Google if they have been diagnosed with COVID-19, which brings in a whole other set of cybersecurity and privacy concerns. But the two companies have actually also released a set of requirements for their developers on this tracing app. That list includes things like only government health authorities can create the app. All apps have to have user contact before using the exposure notification API. A second consent is required before sharing positive test results and diagnoses with public health officials. Again, all of that is in response to privacy and cybersecurity concerns about giving these tech companies your uh, information that you have had this disease. They've also said that all data collection has to be minimized and only used for health response. Data minimization is a big concern right now and something that we actually see reflected in the GDPR and as well a little bit in the California privacy regulation. They also have said that other uses of the data is banned, that it can't be used for targeted advertising or policing. Now, as we talked about last uh, time, even though the company says that it cannot be used for that because of cybersecurity concerns and the way that a smart city might easily share technology, even though they say that that use of data can't be used for advertising and policing, there's always the possibility it could be because of shared data. Now, this is actually something important because once this app is developed, it is automatically going to be built into all iOS and Android operating systems, which is the vast majority of all smartphones. So it is something that even though they're not using location data, it's something that we still do have to be concerned about, especially for people in the IDD community. 
And it's not going to be the only contact tracing app like in the game. Some states uh, like Utah and North Dakota have actually launched their own apps, as well as the country of India. And all those apps actually use location data to detect if people have been near known COVID-19 cases. So it's a little different than what we talked about last week, but some of the concerns that we brought up then are still relevant. Thanks, Taylor, for letting me take this time. Thanks for that, Alex. It's nice to hear about all the new developments in this area, and it shows that this kind of field, um, smart cities and the technology that's going to be associated with them, it's ever-changing, and it's good to keep up with it. So switching gears a little bit, today's program is one in a series of episodes where we will grapple with the way smart cities and smart city technology interact with the law. Today, we enter our second part of our two-part discussion about how smart cities generate challenges within the realm of civil rights law and policy. In the first podcast, as Alex mentioned, we discussed legal and policy concerns at the intersection of smart cities and the intellectually and developmentally disabled community. Today, we will address technologies that will likely proliferate in smart city contexts. In particular, facial recognition technology and other predictive policing, parole, and sentencing applications and how they will impact minority rights and immigration in such cities. Joining us today, as you've heard, are Alex Bratt and Catherine Sorrell, who are also research fellows with CLCT. Welcome back, ladies. Hey. Hey. In our previous episode, Catherine was kind enough to share a bit about her background with regards to her efforts in studying cities. Maybe, Alex, you can share with us a little bit about your interest in some of the technology that we will be discussing today. Sure. So I don't have a formal education in this subject like Catherine does in the study of cities. My interest is actually just more of a layman's interest and has actually been very recent. I've always liked technology and emergent technology, but I didn't really dive into the study of it until I joined CLCT when I entered law school. And since then, I've come to really love the study of artificial intelligence, as well as the uses for artificial intelligence and AI in things like facial recognition and in how we are developing not only our city, but our societies. And as I'm also kind of a constitutional law nerd, as we've seen from these episodes, just anywhere those can interact is really my jam. Thank you, Alex. You're welcome, very casual. (laughs) Now, I'd like for us first to talk about facial recognition. As Catherine and Alex discussed at the end of our last episode, facial recognition technology has been shown repeatedly to exhibit major inaccuracies in recognizing those of various racial minorities and members of the IDD and LGBTQ communities, and they can have nev- negative repercussions for each of those groups. Now, let's back up, though, and first talk more about what facial recognition technology is and what it does. Frankly, it's hard to believe that our civilization has advanced far enough to allow for widespread access to it. I used to associate this stuff with sci-fi movies like fancy mansions and high-tech bank vaults. Uh, Like Minority Report, right? Yeah, like when Tom Cruise is walking through the mall and sees Mm -hmm. the personalized pop-up ads um, on, I guess, like retina scanning um, or the facial recognition used to identify intruders in the kingdom of Wakanda and the Black Panther movie. Those are definitely great scenes, but that's not really what facial recognition tech is actually like today. I would assume not, so maybe some explanation would be helpful to start. 
Okay, so facial recognition or facial rec, as it's often called, it's a term for a very wide range of systems that identify or verify a person based on a digital image or video still. Basically, these systems contain large databases of images of faces that are linked with personal identities. The images, in other words, are tagged. Uh, for example, let's say we have image file 001 in a particular system, and that's going to be then associated with my name, my identity. Uh, when one of these systems is asked to examine a new image, whether it's a photo or a video still, the system then uses artificial intelligence to compare the facial features it recognizes in that image with those of images it has in its database. Once it finds a match, and um, it's important to note that different systems use different algorithms to find matches, so some systems will actually require closer matches than others. So once the system finds a match, the system will spit out a result saying that the new image is of a particular person in its database. So where is this technology used today? Um, all over the place, and often in places you might not realize that it's being used. For example, Facebook uses a really seemingly innocuous application of facial rec when it asks you who else might be in a picture you post, you know, where it goes, can you tag other people in here? So if it suggests the correct person and you choose to tag the image according to its suggestion, you're confirming the algorithm's prediction. So based on this kind of user feedback, the algorithm is able to keep learning and improving its suggestions. So when you think about it, when you feed the algorithm with these confirmations, it's gradually learning to associate people's images with their identities. Now, a lot of industries are trying out facial rec, but it's, a lot of it's experimental. We may not see it in the future in all the industries we're gonna talk about here today. Another place facial recognition is being used, which you might not expect, is in schools. One entire school district in a town um, in New York State actually adopted facial recognition technology um, ostensibly to monitor sex offenders and prevent school shootings. But adopting this technology might actually lead schools to start monitoring individual kids. And the prospect of this is certainly making parents alarmed for privacy reasons. So we see this technology in more mundane contexts too, like traffic monitoring, it's definitely evident that it can be implemented on public city streets quite easily. Of course, we're also seeing this technology make great strides in the security industry, both in local policing efforts and national security settings, such as it's being introduced in a lot of airports to screen passengers automatically, rather than having them be screened by, you know, actual uh, security individuals. And we've also heard about this technology, unfortunately, being used to cyberstalk people. I certainly was not expecting it to be used in so many different and somewhat disconcerting contexts. Um, what are they using this technology for exactly? I know I mentioned that it's being used in the security sector. So I think it actually would be helpful to talk about how facial rec is being used in policing. Sounds good to me. Can you give us some particular examples of its use in that the policing context? Sure. Um, these systems are often advertised to police as a way to help them find missing kids, pick out terrorists in a crowd, identify suspects based on video footage, etc. Uh, for example, a Toronto police department was recently able to use the technology to solve a murder. And as another example, uh, one company called Wolfcom recently announced that it sold body cameras 
that could perform facial recognition in real time to um, 1,500 police departments, universities, and federal organizations. And, and that means that while an officer is wearing one of these body cameras, they will know whether the person they're talking to is wanted for something, whether they have an outstanding warrant for their arrest or if they are a missing person. So at least um, that's what the company tells us. That's what Wolfcom says. Um, if that's true, it would mean that this company could have access to a massive database with booking pictures, missing persons reports, and pictures of wanted suspects. Wolfcom, however, has not released any information about their proprietary database or the algorithms that they use for these body cams. So we don't really know whether those claims are true. We do know, though, that one facial rec company, it's called Clearview AI, they've admitted to trying to buy access to all US mugshot databases so they can feed the information stored in those databases into their algorithms. I've definitely heard about Clearview. Weren't they recently in the news? Oh yeah, uh, the New York Times reported that Clearview scraped the internet, specifically social media, and it saved 3 billion pictures of people to power its facial recognition AI. So Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube have all sent cease and desist letters to Clearview because they never authorized a company to use those images in that way. Has Clearview AI since deleted the images? We have no idea. And even if they did delete those images from their database, it doesn't really solve much. The AI it's generated has likely already been trained using the data from those images. AI can't really unlearn what it's already been taught. So how does that tie back into smart cities? Okay, so these facial rec tech companies aren't just selling this technology to federal agencies like ICE or to universities. They're selling many of these systems to local police departments. And by doing so, they blur the line between the public and private entities that you know we've been talking about at length in previous podcasts with respect to smart cities. So here, public servants, by engaging in policing efforts, are actually serving private technology companies, which then improve their products to better assist policing efforts. It's this whole cycle, um, this feedback cycle between the two entities. Uh, you also have to account for the fact that smart cities are likely to use more closed circuit television. More cameras installed over a city means that there's going to be more ways to monitor services. But installing more cameras also means that there are more opportunities to run facial recognition on unsuspecting citizens. Uh, smart cities is also going to bring up this problem. Georgetown Law has called this problem the perpetual lineup. So law enforcement has had biometric databases in the past. Uh, think about fingerprint databases. And it's important to note that those previous databases were only made up of data of those who were arrested or criminally investigated. Now, many of these private facial recognition databases are fed by information from primarily law-abiding Americans, such as through the submission of driver's license photos. Whether the subjects of the photos knowingly consent to such submission or not. In many states, if you have a driver's license, you're automatically enrolled in one or more of these databases. As a result, data on Americans who have never been suspected of any crime are in these databases, whether they want to be or not. These law-abiding citizens generate a perpetual lineup against whose images of suspects in future crimes are going to be checked. Before, people had to be asked to participate in the lineup, 
And many of them could refuse. You know, if a cop came and knocked on your door and said, hey, there's been a burglary in this neighborhood. And could you come in and stand in the lineup for us so that your burgled neighbor could see if it's you? And you could say no. But now they often have no choice but to participate because they've been automatically enrolled in those lineups. According to a 2016 study by Georgetown Law, more than half of all American adults were enrolled in a facial recognition system that law enforcement could search. And the worst part of this is the fact that your innocence may now rely on the accuracy of an algorithm you've never even heard of because there is always a chance that you might be mistakenly identified as a match. Wow. So this is what you mean when you talk about the dangers of predictive policing. Yes, it is. All these extra cameras, all this new data coming in from the new data input sources that smart cities will utilize, all of this has a lot of people worried about what's called predictive policing. Now, when you say predictive policing, I definitely think minority report. (laughs) Is, Is that what we're talking about here? Okay, we're not at precogs yet, you know, floating in a pool, uh, but that's kind of what people are worried about, uh, that with all these new data points, police are going to try to use this data to predict who will do something illegal and arrest them before the crime has occurred. As an aside, many criminal acts have a mens rea requirement, and mens rea literally means guilty mind, or in other words, bad thoughts. Um, So you must have the intent to do the illegal act in some cases. Um, I was actually having a conversation with my dad just the other night um, during quarantine about what mens rea means. So everyone wonders, uh, everyone has questions about it. Um, But there's no case where you can be arrested simply on criminal thoughts. Um, Our system is built to um, arrest people based on criminal acts. So the question is, do we want to stop the crime before it happens? Of course, absolutely but not at the cost of civil liberties of people who seem to have criminal intent, but don't actually perpetrate the crime. So one of the many concerns with predictive policing is that we may see criminal intent ascribed to certain groups of people just because of who they are, where they're located, and the history of sometimes rampant crime in those areas, and that they may be singled out before any bad act actually occurs. But we're not seeing that now, right? Exactly. But we are seeing what is called risk assessment algorithms being used in the justice system right now. And I think it's important to talk about those a little bit because they could be the starting point for future AI in a smart city justice system. Okay, so let's talk about them now. Obviously, we want to figure out what problems are inherent in these algorithms and whether we would want to use them at all in our justice system, right? Right. Okay, (laughs) before we dive into this weighty issue, I just want to say that we are barely scratching the surface here. I feel like that's something we could say about everything we've discussed on this podcast. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Okay, right now, uh, we generally see these risk assessment tools used in bail and sentencing decisions. I found a really good description of what these tools do by a journalist named Anjali Kristen. Here it is, quote, These are software programs used by criminal courts to quantify defendants' risk of committing another crime based on variables relating to their criminal history, such as criminal record and type of offense and socio-demographic characteristics like age, gender, and employment status. 
The programs produce a score for each defendant, often ranging from one to 10, which is supposed to indicate the likelihood of recidivism, end quote. These scores are then supposed to be used to set a defendant's amount of bail or determine the defendant's sentence and whether or not they're given parole. So these tools have been criticized because since 2016, following a ProPublica study of the risk assessment AI system called Compass, um, which is used by various US jurisdictions to determine bail and sentencing decisions, ProPublica found that the tool gave higher risk scores to African-American defendants than to white defendants. Really? Yeah, in fact, the journalists found that among defendants who ultimately did not reoffend, Black defendants were more than twice as likely as white defendants to be classified as high or medium risk. Hang on, what? so what does that mean, being classified as high or medium risk? It means they are more likely to have a higher bail set, uh, longer sentences, and less likely to be given parole. But why would these algorithms find that Black defendants are more likely to reoffend than white? It goes back to what we were talking about in terms of facial recognition. It has to do with the data you're inputting into these AI programs. These risk assessment algorithms draw on historical policing and arrest data to train their models. And since historically, the US criminal justice system has arrested, convicted, and incarcerated African-Americans at higher rates compared to Caucasians, risk assessment tools reproduce discriminatory patterns. So because we know that's a problem, can't we just fix the part of the algorithm that produces those discriminatory results? It's not like fixing a math equation. You can't just change one variable and expect the right result. What we're faced with here are two distinct problems, the problem of proprietary information and the black box problem. Um, I'm gonna take these one at a time. When I talk about proprietary information, what I mean is that the company which created the algorithm has intellectual property rights in the algorithm. That gives the company the right to restrict the use of the algorithm, the inspection of the source code, modification of that code, and the redistribution of the code. Even though the government uses the algorithm in the criminal justice system, the company retains these rights for the algorithm. When we're talking about fixing the algorithm, because the algorithm may be proprietary, we may not even be allowed to inspect the algorithm, let alone fix it, due to its proprietary nature. Okay, now to the black box problem. Here, the issue isn't that we can't see the algorithm. The problem is that even if we could see it, we wouldn't understand it. We can view the inputs and the outputs, but we just don't know how these algorithms arrive at the results. These kind of systems are often said to be opaque. It's difficult to look inside the black box to understand why the algorithm does what it does or how it works. And because we can't understand it, we can't reverse engineer how these algorithms came to the result. Now there is a movement to create what's known as explainable AI, where the objective is to make these opaque systems transparent and understandable. But that only helps us with the black box problem. It won't help us address the problem arising from proprietary information. Now, judges don't have to follow the recommendations of these risk assessment tools, right? Ultimately, aren't bail and sentencing decisions at the discretion of the judge? Yeah, you're totally right. Um, judges have discretion as to whether or not to follow these recommendations, um, just like they have discretion in whether or not to follow sentencing guidelines set by statutes. Except for statutorily set mandatory sentences. There, the judge's hands are tied. 
Absolutely. Um, it should be noted that there haven't been many studies on this, but the few that have been done have found that judges don't follow these risk assessment recommendations, um, mainly it seems um, because they just don't trust the algorithm. So it seems that for now, the impact that these algorithms could have is kind of cabined. But I would think as new judges come to the bench, like younger judges who are more comfortable with AI and technology, this might actually become an escalating problem. They've like these judges or new judges um, who will be coming to the bench have grown up with this technology and they'd be used to it. And in a smart city situation where AI is already prevalent, I think most judges would be even more likely to rely on those algorithms. And that's part of the worry with these systems. The justice system may not rely on them now, but it could in the future. We have to remember that there are multiple risk assessment tools out there and different jurisdictions are contracting with different companies. So different corporations are using different algorithms to provide these recommendations. And these different tools provide different results, different levels of efficacy. Um, if judges rely on these recommendations in the future, what we could see is that due to various jurisdictions using different programs, defendants would be treated in different ways and have different sentences potentially because of algorithmic differences across jurisdictional lines. I guess what's the difference between that though and what already happens today? Aren't defendants already treated differently like depending on what state they're in um, or whether they're in state or federal court? I guess why would that matter? Oh, that, that's a very good point. Um, but I think what it really brings up is why people are less comfortable with algorithms determining results versus statutes determining, determining results. It's like the difference between multiplication versus quantum calculus. We can see how and understand how multiplication works, just like we can go to the statute and see how it determines the result. But these algorithms are a black box. We can't see how they lead to a result like quantum calculus. We just have no way of knowing. And statutes can also be changed in response to societal pressure. Um, but the question is, how do we change a proprietary algorithm? Do we legislate a result and hope the company can fix the AI to achieve that result? And then how do you enforce that? How do you create a remedy? It's a lot more murky than pushing a legislature to change a statute, even considering how difficult that process can be. That makes a lot of sense. So let's bring this discussion back to smart cities. What does this all mean? Like what kind of impact will this technology have in this context? When we're talking about smart cities, we're talking about a huge aggregation of data. All these new technologies gathering data about all parts of people's lives. The impact of these technologies will really depend on what a smart city does with that data. If a city feeds these algorithms with a disproportionate amount of data on certain communities as opposed to others, the results of the algorithms will focus on those communities. It forces communities into a feedback loop. If you look for crime in neighborhood A a lot more than you look for crime in neighborhood B, you're gonna find more crime in neighborhood A because that's where you're focusing. And if you arrest more people in neighborhood A and then put that data into these algorithms, the algorithms are going to think that people from neighborhood A are more likely to commit crime and more likely to reoffend. Ultimately, a smart city needs to think about where it puts its technology and how it uses the data it collects because it can lead to disproportionate results without the city ever really intending it. 
how would specific populations or communities be particularly susceptible to targeting through these feedback loops? These feedback loops would tend to target all the minority groups that we have discussed today and last week. But I want to highlight it would also have potentially nasty repercussions for those in immigrant communities. How so? Well, we're seeing facial recognition use on immigrant communities, and some of that data is being turned over to Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or abbreviated ICE, which is often done through tech companies selling it to ICE directly. So we mentioned this briefly in our previous episode on smart cities and civil rights, but Cities can often develop their own policies and law enforcement practices, which includes potentially controlling entry and exit into the city in the name of national security. Um, so we're seeing, for example, the use of facial recognition in airports and major cities. Um, jumping off of what Alex explained about predictive policing, we then see an intersection of immigration issues and criminal justice issues where you have the NYPD, for example, turning over its so-called gang database or list of people that they suspect of being in gangs to ICE, which means that folks on that list can be subjected to continual surveillance, especially if they subject them to facial recognition surveillance. Um, so you might also see efforts in the name of counterterrorism, which might then target Muslim immigrant communities. Now, in Baltimore, you see an example of what might be considered a pro-immigrant policy actually enabling the use of facial rec on Im immigrants. So Maryland passed a law in 2013 that allowed undocumented immigrants to have driver's licenses. They were the first state on the East Coast to pass this type of law, but an unintended consequence has emerged because ICE is now running searches using the database of those driver's license photos to identify undocumented immigrants without court or state approval. You could imagine other scenarios where a smart city turns over biometric information like fingerprints or facial features and it gets used for more than just that immediate stated purpose, like an ID system to access uh, public transportation. There's also a national security element to this. Uh, think about the EU and the Schengen zone. It's a really big area with very limited barriers to the movement of people. We've seen in recent years that those lack of barriers actually became a problem for countries following the Syrian civil war and the huge influx of refugees to Europe. And while the vast majority of those refugees were civilian, there have also been IS fighters who have moved into this barrierless zone because of those lack of barriers, this could be a place where facial recognition could be used. You could still allow refugees to move through the countries, but use facial rec to pick out those IS members. So obviously everything you're describing kind of focuses on the individual, like they impact individuals as opposed to like something broader. But I guess, are there other types of like overarching impacts that these types of scenarios could have on cities more generally? Well, certainly there could be an economic impact. Uh, Baltimore, from our prior example, it's one of the nation's top automotive ports. So having a steady flow of migration and a workforce is important to running essential parts of that city's economy. And there has been reporting that shows that restrictive measures on entry into a city would also impact imports and exports. So it would have an effect on 
overall on all citizens as well as an effect on non-citizens. Yeah, in many ways, the impact question goes back to a theme in this podcast series, um, which is why cities matter. Cities are places that attract diverse communities, including immigrant communities, um, because there are job opportunities, there's mobility, there's access to resources and culture, and there can sometimes be a concentration of creativity, innovation, and all kinds of unexpected intersections of people that you would find in cities. Um, but when you have more limitations on the spigots, so to speak, of who comes in and out of a city and communities feel threatened or like they have to go into hiding or they're restricted um, in any way, it takes away some of what makes cities important and unique places. So how do these impacts on immigrant communities compare to those that we've discussed with the IDB community, um, or I guess to other minority groups like the LGBTQ plus community or other racial minorities? Can we draw anything from those comparisons? Yeah, I, I would say that the common theme is access. Um, who's given access to the city and its benefits, its services, its community. Um, so when it comes to immigration, we might ask whether citizenship should be a prerequisite to accessing a smart city. Um, undocumented workers already experience poor access to healthcare and other services because of lack of um, easy access to driver's licenses or social security numbers. Um, so if we predicate more basic services in a smart city on, for example, the use of biometric data that could put them at risk of surveillance, their access to the city's infrastructure and resources becomes threatened. But it would only preclude their access to that particular city, right? Or is it possible to communicate this type of biometric information between smart cities? Potentially, it will be difficult to share this information between cities for two reasons. First, it may be classified as proprietary data. If two cities use different technologies, they've uh, contracted with different companies, they may be prevented from sharing that data due to the protection that proprietary data is afforded. Second, you may find that if two smart cities use different technologies, those technologies may not be able to speak to each other. Think iOS versus Android. And even if that biometric information isn't proprietary, it may just be too difficult to send it from one system to another system in a readable or useful format. Ultimately, city-by-city city policymaking may prevent the sharing of information. All right, ladies, we've talked about a lot of stuff today, um, and I might need your help kind of summarizing all of this for our audience. Yeah, no, it's, we've kind of been far afield at different points, kind of jumping all over the place. So that's a really good idea. So when we're talking about smart city technology and uses that we're already seeing, like specific technologies we're already seeing uh, coming about, you know, facial rec is a very big one. And it's a really good one to start talking about a lot of these issues before, you know, everything grows. And we have a smart city relying on all of these technologies and it being integrated uh, across the city. And facial rec has some really, really beneficial applications. I mean, in Toronto, it just helped them solve a murder that they had no other leads for. It can make 
entry into the country when you come back into the airport much easier and much quicker. It, they've said, you know, it can really help pick out missing children in a crowd. All of these are great uses for technology and ultimately helping a police department allocate resources in a much more efficient manner. But because of the input data that we're using, facial recognition can become very scary very quickly. When we see that with, like I said, the input data, in that unlike prior policing databases, the input data for these facial rec databases isn't by consent. And not only is it not by consent, it's also being done with law-abiding citizens without their complete knowledge. So what we could end up having is that perpetual lineup that I talked about earlier, where law-abiding citizens could be always checked for being a criminal and for always being checked to be a suspect without their knowledge. And they have to rely on an algorithm to make that decision correctly. And those algorithms, we see the same problem there in facial rec as we do in the use of predictive policing in that we have a problem with proprietary information and we have a black box problem. So if we wanna fix these problems, we are stopped by the fact that we may not even be able to look at the algorithm. We might not be able to fix it because it's owned by a company. And we've decided to allocate intellectual property protections to them for this algorithm. And then we have the black box problem that even if we were allowed to look at these algorithms, we may not be able to understand it. We can see the input and you can see the output, but we cannot understand the middle, so we cannot fix it. And ultimately, it all goes back to something we've been talking about a lot before, is that smart cities have to be very informed when they make these decisions and have to make their decisions really very carefully. They have to figure out who they're putting into these algorithms and then think about is that going to create a disproportionate result on their citizens? It's making that informed judgment about what we're almost willing to sacrifice in order to kind of receive those benefits that are associated with the technology. Exactly. Even if a city buys these technologies, you know, contracts out with these companies, the thought can't just be, is this going to be more efficient? Or is this cool new thing? It has to be who in my citizenry is this gonna affect and who is it gonna uh, affect without their consent? And then that, is that effect gonna be disproportionate? Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And just to drill down on, on that point um, that Alex has made so beautifully, um, I, I would say that it, it really is about how this technology affects communities. Um, because again, there can be all kinds of benefits that everyone in the city can experience uh, from it, but when you look at it applied to particular communities, and, and you know, we discussed the application of it to immigrant communities, for example, you know, when you apply facial recognition to schools, for example, um, you're applying it to a, a group of people that, you know, doesn't have a criminal record yet, um, but there could be infractions that get recorded and, and then end up in a system or a record that's difficult to expunge. With the the uh, community of immigrants living in cities, it can uh, lead to further access problems, you know, difficulty accessing all of the employment benefits, all of the healthcare benefits, all of the, you know, even just social benefits of a city um, if they're subjected to surveillance by uh, facial recognition technology, for example. 
there's all kinds of, of interconnected, intertwined issues um, that we've been examining over the course of this whole podcast series, but certainly the last two episodes. So teasing them apart is certainly difficult, but um, one of the ways that we've been trying to do that is by drilling down on a few very specific communities and examining how it might impact them in particular. And so we did that last episode with the IDD community. Um, this episode, we looked at um, the immigrant community and uh, predictive policing. So hopefully it's given our audiences kind of a, a sense of what the, the disparate impacts might look like when we're talking about this technology. And hopefully it's given our audience a sense of the responsibility that, uh, that city policymakers have, because these communities that are affected disproportionately, they're not communities that have always had easy access to their lawmakers, to those who can change society. So not only do they have a hard time coming forward to ask that things be fixed, but what they're asking for to be fixed like we talked about, it's hard to fix an algorithm and you don't even know where to fix it. And even if you say you can't, you need to stop accessing this data, the AI has already learned it. They can't unlearn it. Ultimately, the responsibility has to fall on city policymakers. And it's asking a lot of them, but I think that the citizenry deserves it. If you want to lead your city, you need to take on this responsibility. Well, and that also brings us to another Point too. I mean, a lot of these changes can also be sort of spurred by people like, I mean, people like us. If more people are aware and know what's going on, they can also talk to their city policymakers. They can talk to their state, uh, state and local government. Like that's stuff that as long as people are aware of what's going on and learn about these kinds of issues, they can actually be the change that they want. Um, and so that, I think that's a great way of kind of wrapping this whole thing and, and really trying to encompass what the purpose of this podcast series is. Um, so again, I'd recommend, obviously these issues are all intertwined, um, would definitely recommend anyone who's interested in this topic to listen to our entire series, um, but also just learn as much as you can and reach out to people who might unfortunately be suffering the impacts of this kind of, these kinds of technological developments and also reach out to the people who can change them. I think that's a great way to put it, Taylor. Thank you, Alex. Um, so this has obviously given us a lot of food for thought. Ladies, seriously, as we try to make this future um, more inclusive for all in our cities and communities, um, I cannot thank you enough for joining us today and sharing your thoughts with us. And I want to send a huge thank you out to everyone listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, Exhibit AI, where you can hear more about the intersection of law and emerging technologies. For more from CLCT, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and our website, all linked in the description of this episode. Finally, this podcast is made possible by a generous grant of the Silicon Valley Community Foundation, which is funded by Cisco Systems Incorporated. We truly appreciate their continued support of our independent research efforts. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you stay healthy and safe. Until next time, this is Exhibit AI. Bye. Bye.